March of 1858, Thomas Kane's efforts to end the Utah War had been fruitless. He had spent a week with Colonel Albert Sidney Johnston and the U.S. Army on the plains of Wyoming. President James Buchanan had sent the Army to Utah to remove Brigham Young as governor and replace him with Alfred Cumming. This had led to a months-long armed standoff between the U.S. Army and the Latter-day Saint militia. Sensing that he alone could work out a peace between the two sides, Thomas Kane raced to the Wyoming wilderness at personal expense and with no official authority to throw himself between the two armies and negotiate a peace. But after months of grueling travel, personal danger, and several close calls with death, Thomas Kane had made no progress in convincing Colonel Johnston or his staff to de-escalate the conflict. It was in this moment that Kane struck upon an idea to end the Utah War. In this episode, we explore how Thomas Kane, to the shock of Army leaders, rescued the chance for peace in a wholly unexpected way. I'm Nate Olson, and this is Adventures in Mormon History. On the night of March 16th, Thomas Kane called on Colonel Johnston with an unusual request. Kane asked for permission to pass through the Army's defensive line to travel to the Latter-day Saint militia and deliver a sealed letter to Brigham Young. As one of the few outsiders that the Latter-day Saints trusted, Kane could cross through the Nauvoo Legion defenses without trouble, even though they had brought the U.S. Army campaign to a cautious halt. Colonel Johnston gave him permission, and so Kane armed himself with two pistols, took his brother's rifle, mounted his horse, and headed west, passing through the sentry line and riding toward the Latter-day Saint Army. Kane may not have realized this, but the nonchalance and the confidence with which he could pass through the Nauvoo Legion's defenses fueled hostility, resentment, and suspicion among the soldiers who had lost roughly half of their supplies to Mormon raids. As he passed through the sentries, Kane seemed insensible to the slow, burning hatred that these soldiers felt for him. Kane rode off into the Black's Fork wilderness, headed toward Muddy Creek Mail Station. He fell in with a group of Nauvoo Legion soldiers under the command of Brigadier General Lewis Robinson. Kane delivered Robinson the sealed letter for Brigham Young. Kane's lines hinted at a secret plan so sensitive he did not dare commit it to writing. Instead, the sealed letter contained this request. If you can, send me William Kimball. I will converse with him in perfect confidence. I remain your friend to serve you. Kane's requested ambassador, William Kimball, was the oldest son of Heber C. and Vallette Kimball. The 31-year-old was an experienced soldier and frontiersman in his own right, a veteran of both the Ute Indian Wars and the 1856 Handcart Rescue Mission. In a letter to President James Buchanan, Thomas Kane described Kimball as an excellent young man who had helped care for the fever-bound Kane ten years before, when Kane had nearly succumbed to a fever while visiting the Latter-day Saint refugees at Winter Quarters, Nebraska. As Robinson rode off to Salt Lake City with his sealed letter, Kane turned around to return to the Army camp. But in riding out to rendezvous with the Latter-day Saints, Kane had placed himself in more danger than he realized. 
and on the night of March 17th, Kane's horse ambled toward Johnston's army and the sentry line in the lonely Wyoming wilderness outside of Camp Scott. Thus far, Kane had spent his time with the officers and civil servants accompanying the expedition, men of similar social status and education. He may have had no real sense of how tenuously the officers maintained discipline among the hard-faced enlisted soldiers, especially when they were manning a sentry post, far from the light of campfires and the stern gaze of officers and NCOs. And so it was that as Kane rode at an easy pace toward the sentry, Private Michael McCarty, the soldier raised his rifle and fired on him. <laughs> Sensing that he was about to be murdered, Kane raised his pistol and fired four shots into the air. The report of the shots rang out across the frozen plains, raising an alarm. Soon, a reaction force arrived at the scene, led by Captain John Robinson. Kane, badly shaken, demanded to know why McCarty had fired on him. But Private McCarty claimed it was Kane who had fired on him. Robinson took Kane into custody, possibly for his own safety, and delivered him to Alfred Cumming the next day. The army apparently did not deem the matter worth investigating any further, but it is worth noting that McCarty was one of the soldiers under the command of Captain Cuvier Grove, who earlier had written to his wife about Thomas Kane. My men want to hang him. Say he is a Mormon. I'm half persuaded they may be right. For his part, Colonel Johnston's adjutant, Major Fitz John Porter, wrote in his journal, I saw Mr. Kane, who I still think an ass, though he is a gentleman. I heard his explanation of causing an alarm and in being in danger from the guards. Ugh, pity they did not rid him of life. It would have saved one fool from troubling us. Having survived what was likely an attempt on his life, Kane remained undaunted, and on the 25th of March, 1858, he again set out towards the Latter-day Saint lines to meet William Kimball. Kane had given as the meeting point Quaking Aspen Hill, which meant Kane would have to travel for miles in snow-packed, unfamiliar country. As historian Bill McKinnon notes, this journey would again push Kane to his limits. The snow was so deep that it buried the trail. Only with great difficulty did Kane manage to trudge along at a pace of about one mile per hour. For a time, he was pursued by an unknown band of what appeared to be hostile Indians. Trying to evade them, he lost the trail. His pack mule faltered and nearly rolled down the mountainside. In the crisis, he broke his rifle. His journal entries include brief sketches of his thoughts on this trip, ranging from his home, his family, his faltering mule, to utter hopelessness and despair. Yet, as he slogged through the snow, day after day, the adventure and the mountain air seemed to revive him. He wrote a letter to his brother Pat, I have actually suffered less than my horse or my mule. Outdoor exercise, with excitement enough to blunt the sense of affliction. And mountains, dear fellow, mountains, every draught of the pure atmosphere I relish. At last, he made it to Quaking Aspen Hill and met William Kimball. Kimball was skeptical that any peace could be hammered out at this point. He noted that even though Kane had relayed to Brigham Young an apology from President Buchanan, the army was just as hostile now as it had ever been. 
It had spent all its time gathering its forces for a springtime offensive, which, Kimball said, shows the insincerity of President Buchanan or his want of power to control the Camp Scott people. Kane did not try arguing with Kimball, uh, nor did he disclose that he had uh, completely invented the apology from the White House. Instead, Kane painted an even darker picture of the situation, reminding Kimball that church leaders, including his father, Heber C. Kimball, were under indictment for treason, which carried with it the grim prospect of death by hanging. It was then that Kane laid out his secret plan. Of course, the whole mission of the Utah expedition was to forcibly remove Brigham Young as governor of the territory and replace him with Alfred Cumming. But what if Alfred Cumming were to come alone into Salt Lake City without the army, be accepted by the church and the people of Utah, and begin serving as territorial governor? What if Brigham Young voluntarily stepped down from office? Doing so would show that Utah was not in a state of rebellion, and it would leave the army entirely without a mission or purpose. And so, Kane asked, is there anything to be lost by your admitting coming and recognizing him as governor? After a moment, William Kimball replied, no. Kane then offered to bring Alfred Cumming by himself into Salt Lake City. They next began planning how this would work. Kane recognized that Brigham Young may not sign off on this plan, and he told Kimball that they needed to know how to proceed if the church and the Nauvoo Legion rebuffed coming. In true fashion, Kane's imagination began to spin, and he proposed a Byzantine array of visual signals and passwords that he and Kimball could use when he brought coming into Salt Lake. Historian Bill McKinnon, commenting on this elaborate plan, wrote, to think that they could have used such complex signs, signals, and passwords on horseback in the snow-packed wilderness was as elaborate as it was Keynesian. Kane returned to Camp Scott. His first task now was to convince Alfred Cumming to go with him. Cumming was a Southerner, the former mayor of Augusta, Georgia, and 52 years old. At the time of the Army campaign, he was obese, hard-drinking, and terrified of contracting rabies from a recent dog bite. Worst of all, Cumming had no self-control. When ladies were present, he simply would not keep his hands to himself. Yet Cumming, in many ways the opposite of the chivalrous, diminutive Yankee Thomas Kane, had come to respect Kane and rely on his judgment. It also helped that Cumming, like Thomas Kane, could not stand Colonel Johnston or his staff. How did Kane talk Cumming into his plan? Kane first explained that by arriving in Utah by himself, he would diminish the significance of how Johnston had rebuffed Brigham Young's peace overtures. This would both ease the feeling of the Latter-day Saints and, of course, minimize any glory that Colonel Johnston would win for leading the campaign. Second, the church's annual general conference was scheduled for the 6th of April, 1858. Kane explained to Cumming that all the church leaders would attend, and they would set the course of resistance for the springtime thaw, when Johnston's army could resume their march, and the slow-burning conflict may suddenly ignite into all-out war. But if Cumming attended general conference, Kane explained, it would have a tendency to baffle and to allay excitement. Cumming agreed. Cumming and Kane 
called upon Colonel Johnston. Cumming blithely announced that he and Kane were going to strike out on their own for Salt Lake City. Johnston was stupefied. Leave the army behind that had been sent for his own protection? He quickly tried talking coming out of this idea. Johnston offered to send at least part of the army with him, but Cumming refused. No, sir. If I cannot enter Salt Lake City without one, I cannot enter with one. Johnston continued to question, cajole, and dissuade Cumming from this scheme. But he was powerless to stop him. And so Alfred Cumming, following Thomas Kane, set out alone for Salt Lake City, leaving 2,500 army soldiers in a state of complete bewilderment, wondering what their long months of hunger, snow, and frost had all been for. As they left the camp, Kane sensed that he had outmaneuvered his enemies at Camp Scott and was on the verge of forging a hard-won peace between the Latter-day Saints and the federal government. As they passed the defensive line, where he had almost been killed the last time he passed through, he wrote in his journal, I sat stiff for bitter pride in the governor's carriage as we passed the sentries till abreast of Table Bluff and then stepped into the saddle. He was almost overwhelmed by the romance of the adventure. Hope, adventure, mountain air, a good horse, and liberty. What fun! A shame to feel so near happiness. Kane and Cumming arrived in Salt Lake City, where they were welcomed into the beautiful Staines Mansion. There then began a months-long process towards a settled peace. Peace commissioners arrived from Washington, D.C., with presidential pardons for church leaders who had been indicted for treason, provided they stop resisting federal authority. Church leaders, in turn, agreed to stop resisting if the administration could control the army. On our next episode, we'll explore the culmination of the army campaign as Colonel Johnston led his troops into Salt Lake City. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Adventures in Mormon History. I'm your host, Nate Olson.